welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and playstyles of all the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't, what led to better games, as well as what didn't. We talk about it all. In this episode, we have two, count them two, special guests. Uh, Sam and I are talking to uh, my lovely wife, Rabbit Stoddard, and uh, my dear friend, Colin McLaughlin, who is the best man at my wedding. So, you know, it's it's good to have friends. Um, so these people I've been gaming with for a real long time, and I'm very happy to have them on our show. So today we're going to be going over Chapter 4 of the 5th Edition DMG. So, overall thoughts. Tables! I like tables. Tables are great. <laughs> so this is a chapter of mostly tables. Uh, there are a few... Like mechanics in here that are not a table, um, but this is mostly a chapter about inspiring you with ideas for things, or like letting giving you a table to roll on if you're feeling creatively blocked. Yeah, I think I was talking to Brandis about this uh, a little bit earlier today, and I said, you know, this is a this is a really great chapter full of stuff that I don't really find useful to me personally. But it, but it does have a lot of really nice stuff in here to, to help people that need to generate NPCs and things like that. You know, I feel um, about this chapter very similar to how I feel about some of the other portions of some of the other chapters. And that is that there are lots of missed opportunities in this chapter. And what they've given us is a very cursory set of samples and didn't really dig too deep to be perfectly honest. Well, so I will say that I think villain methods is, is fairly exhaustive as a table. The fact that they then don't have word count available to go explain how any of those really get communicated in play. And you, you kind of need to like figure out how to, how a, a character would use that method to achieve the, you know, objective and scheme described in the table before it. Well, that might require a lot more thought, but you know, ward count is a is a cruel mistress, and that would that could easily be, you know, fifty thousand words of just what are a bunch of different ways a villain could go about their horrible scheme, or you or or you give a couple of good juicy examples, and you only spend one column of one page. Um, I I think that if you had that, you would still say no, I need more. Yeah, but you only gave me two examples. Well, well, um, I guess I guess because I don't just mean an example. I mean like an example that is a work through example, right? Where you're showing the DM how to do it. Like, let's say we roll, and let's say we rolled a seventeen, and then we rolled a six, right? Oh. And that gives us looting, and then literally provide maybe i don't know four steps on you know here are the four things you need to think about when you're trying to figure out how this villain's methods are going to you know interact with the other parts of your game and give something for the players to bounce off of and you know how is how does looting make for uh, an interesting villain how how does that me- you know how how to make that method fantastical or something right Sure. Instead of just, you know, I don't mean just descriptive examples. I, I could look up what highway robbery means or gossiping means or slavery means. But I mean, give me an, a worked example so that you're providing me with a way to use this table as other than inspiration. 
So you want kind of the the like plagues, the like actual play example kinds of thing that. Are you just talking like a list of hooks? No, I mean, I, I, I want something in between. I, I really, I, I don't like actual play examples because yeah. they're usually done so poorly. <laughs> yeah, me, me either, which is why I was kind of surprised. No, what I want is I want an example that actually gives a viewpoint into how somebody could make this table work for them as anything other than inspiration. It's a great table. Yes, it has lots of various methods in it, but how do I take um, defamation and, and humiliation and use that as my villain's methods and really make that work in a game, right? Or how do I take, as I said before, looting, right? Looting, how is that a villainous method? You know what I mean? But instead of just say, well, looting means this, and so you could have your villain use that method, Tell me, okay, here's four bullet points. Here's four items you need to think about, right? Number one, who is the looting affecting the most? And it doesn't have to be the PCs directly. It could be the town they're from, or it could be the mayor, or it could be a merchant's guild, or it could be some pirates, right? And who is the villain working in concert with to make this looting such a big deal that it rises to the elements of being a villainous method other than just some kid stealing some stuff, right? And number three, how can the PCs interact with or discover facts about the villain's activities in a way that they that has a direction, a, a directly actionable outcome, right? How do you put that looting front and center in a couple of adventures to make the PCs realize without just expositorily telling the players, well, this villain's method is looting, right? Sure. That's the kind of thing I want. And, and just one or two of those could take a couple pages and it would be golden. And so, so my, my response to that is that they could do it in one line. Hey, have, hey kids, have you done your series run of leverage lately? Go do that. Because, like, John Rogers researching all of the bad things people do is uh, one of my favorite things okay. on Twitter. Okay, but, but if I'm a person who doesn't watch television, that's a meaningless sentence to me. Well, no, no I, I get you, man. It's just, like, um, a lot of what they're even going to be able to explain is going to depend on tropes from fiction. Like, but that's why they need to explain it. They, you, they, it doesn't have to rely on tropes from fiction. So to Sam's <laughs> point, they actually have to do this, except they do it in the middle of the chapter instead of the end of the chapter. So like in the Monsters and NPCs section, they bring up the Xanathar and they use the stuff from the previous tables, but mm -hmm. ideals, bonds, flaws, secrets, mannerisms, mm -hmm. etc., to describe the Xanathar. They should have just gone one further and instead of having that in the middle, done it at the end after the villain scheme and villain method section to sort of indicate how, you know, so what's the Xanathar's scheme and what's their method and what they're, what are they up to? Sure. And and that, that might have just been organizationally better. Yeah, cer certainly, you know, maybe it's, this is me coming from work here on the on the West Coast less than an hour ago, but 
to me, this is a lot like project scoping, right? Like in this section, if they, if they had provided a list of questions to answer, right? Like these are the questions to answer once you have these things and this is how you apply those answers. I I think maybe that might be getting somewhere productive. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I admittedly also can't resist looking at these books in a kind of project management view these days. But Right. It's just, like, unfortunately, this chapter is sort of siloed by chapter breaks from adventure structure in the chapter previous. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and th- those are things that, like, really need to hook together. And... Uh, like yeah. they, they've done, they've they've written samples of all of this and published them in their own separate hardbacks. You know, yeah. Yeah. right? But but now you're getting into the question I always ask you: Who's the freaking audience for this book? Then is it somebody who's going to run a bunch of those published adventures? They don't need this book. The people who are using this book are people who are running their own homebrew stuff. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know what to tell you, man. Like, sorry, yeah, I know it, I sound like way more aggressive than I <laughs> that I mean this. Well, like, it, it's it's all just a word count issue. Like every single thing that no no they can't cut this to add that. Like they, they made a ton of tough decisions, and it's still you know the longest book. Okay, but you can cut out the NPC appearance table and the ability table. I, I, and 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 maybe the either the talents or mannerisms or or you know and you you just gained a page. I, I think all of those would be a bad mistake because those are some of the first hooks that PCs can use to remember who someone is, and that's why it's there. I I, I do think those tables justify their existence. Yeah, I work with a, a lot of young people who have just sort of gotten into D&D in this recent wave, right? Uh, and, and they know I'm a D&D fan and, and play D&D, so they ask me a lot of questions. And it's it's really funny how much they rely on these tables when they're playing their games, even published adventures, right? Because they want to craft it and make, their, make it their own and work in the, the stories of the people they're playing with. But like they really do rely on these tables. Like, it, it surprised me how much that's been the case. Granted, small audience, but like, I don't know, 20 or so people. To, to be fair, I mean, when I was first DMing and I was in you know junior high and high school, uh, I generated almost everything from tables. I was a huge fan of, uh, of this and the dungeon random generation in the first edition uh, DMG. I mean, I use those for most things. Actually, one of my favorite things about this and all the tables – and the, including what you need to know about the NPC is what's not here. I mean, it is basically, this whole chapter is here to tell you, do not f- write up a character sheet for all of your NPCs. Right. It, it says, only if it's a threat do they even need stats. You, you can give them an emphasis of some kind, but and if you give them a class, and there some classes that weren't here that, that didn't exist when this was written. So, and so there's very little here, but even if you give them a class, you do not need to give them an entire character sheet. Oh my God, please do not spend your time doing that. And I appreciate that. And even, even when it says, Hey, by the way, you might, you could just look in the back of the player's handbook or in the back of the, of the monster manual and get, some really nice, succinct stat blocks if you really feel like you need one, but don't waste your time creating a new one. 
unless this is going to be the main big bad of your game. Right. Mm-hmm. And like years of published adventures shows, shows that for once, like D and D is actually doing exactly what they say. Right. There certainly are unique NPC stat blocks, but they are vanishingly rare, even among important named NPCs, all things considered. Sure. And so I, I want to also make sure nobody gets me wrong, right? Because I'm uh, at, like Rabbit, I grew up creating everything from tables and using the first edition DMG extensively and using, you know, creating my own random tables and then using them to generate it. I love tables. I'm a table guy. I mean, I'm an old school, loving my tables, but I mean, I'm here to critique this chapter, right? And if you're going to tell me that all this stuff in the beginning in these tables is really, really important, but then you're going to tell me that it's not important enough to then show people how to use the really important tables a couple pages later because word, you know, word counts a harsh mistress, I'm going to ask you, you know, well, then could we cut something somewhere else? Because if this is that freaking important, then we need to give more space to it. And except in that, okay, maybe they couldn't increase word count. Well, that's why I said cut something else from a different chapter. Make this chapter larger. I mean, some sections yeah. in this are going to like get expanded to whole chapters of later books. Uh, I'll call your attention to uh, NPC party members. That That's going to become sidekicks. And uh, uh, patrons, uh, which is going to get uh, expanded into a full chapter of... Uh, not one book, but arguably three. Uh, so it shows up in Eberron and uh, Tasha's Culture of Everything. And I'm going to argue that the, um, the, the piety sections in uh, Mythic Odysseys of Theros is close enough to being uh, individual character patrons uh, rather than a party patron that it still kind of counts. Because those are ultra-powerful NPCs that are Centrally important to your character. Well, there you go. Like, I, I, I don't think this chapter is useless to someone with a dictionary in hand. Is 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 my thing. Oh well, don't get me wrong. I'm not calling it useless. I'm saying it needs more. <laughs> it's in fact so not useless that it needs even more. Right. Okay. That's my whole point. Okay, so uh, so let's move on from that. Um, so I, I I have pushed my view forth, and so I I don't have to talk about that anymore. So so what's your favorite part of this chapter? So so my favorite part for sure is uh, the the giant table of villains methods because it does get me thinking about uh, ways to have someone be horrible that are not my go tos, right? So so that is one of my favorites. Um, and beyond that, I, I find most of the chapter useful, but not sort of um, something I really have to reference that much. I don't know if I would call it favorite, but I find the optional rule for loyalty interesting. Mm-hmm. And part of it is because I had not actually read this, but I had to design something similar when working on Talisman. True. Because followers are a really huge part of Talisman. Um that's Talisman Adventures, a tabletop role-playing game available now from Pegasus Spiel. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I like the idea of it if you really need to be that mechanical with it. And I think that it can be very useful for uh, folks who either haven't figured out 
to roll with just purely narrative role play or a very everything must be mechanized so and are treating you know people hanging out with them as treasure which is a very old school way of playing it or um yeah where i mean that just isn't uh, we're actually talking to people and having um ways your party feels about folks be a part of the role play there is definitely a game design maxim that if you want players to value something uh make it a stat on the character sheet and let it go up and down. That's true. And um, it, it's a place where the uh, the old school gaming and um, uh, a lot of indie gaming come at it from different directions but wind up in a very similar place. Though, of course, this wants the loyalty square to be secret, which I think actually kind of misses one of the great benefits of just uh, uh, yeah, tracking loyalty. Keep track of an NPC's loyalty score in secret, so the players won't know for sure whether an NPC party member is loyal or disloyal. And isn't there a, a portion in this? Uh, I can't. I don't remember what chapter, but isn't there like a reaction or morale kind of? I think there's a morale optional rule later on. Yeah, I feel like uh, this is this can be somewhat related to that, and and it's sort of. Uh, because I think those things are split up, it almost uh, keeps them a little bit too separate in terms of concepts of, you know, how does an NPC react? How how does an NPC that is familiar to the party? How do they? Um, how how loyal are they if they're working with the party? Or how much does it take to make them disloyal? Is yeah, I, I don't know. It is a very mechanized sort of way to use. I think what a lot of people would consider should just be social interaction in the role playing. I don't know. Well, I could see especially I could see some DMs wanting to, say if you have a long list of NPCs or whatnot. I can see wanting to keep track of that on the back end and use a quick mechan uh, you know number to represent how they feel about it, and that could be useful as a DM tool. I mean. I could also see it being useful out there in the open, depending on what kind of game you're running. So, so this is my favorite section of the, the chapter too, though I, th I think actually I have a second answer sort of building on something we said earlier, but I'll come back to that. Um, yeah, full disclosure, I am a lo long time EverQuest player. Uh, I, I played back in the old days. So, uh, I've, I've played around with different faction methods over the years running games. I think both Rabbit and Brandis were subjected to the stuff I tried to do in our fourth edition Planescape game that I ran uh, to, to mixed results, let's say. Right. Uh, I'm pretty sure listeners of this show have heard me uh, wax loquacious about how great that game was more than once. Oh, geez. Um, uh, and, you know, now I actually use this for it, tracking things for the games that I'm running now. And the reason for that is, depending on what players do, I just want to know, like, relative to the the party, how much each each group likes each other and things like that, right? It helps me more as a tool to direct where the action might go rather than necessarily as, as player-facing. Though, granted, it's for general NPC interactions or at least factions and not uh, NPC party members. Yep, that makes sense. Um, like, it, it's... It, it's you know using similar scales of numbers to renown 
and using it in the same way as Renown does make sense. Um, like, um, Renown doesn't do a great job of covering um, who you've really uh, pissed off lately. So uh, using loyalty in its place makes sense there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the loss and the gains appealed to me. I kind of wish they also would have integrated a little bit of the reputation idea in here, right? Like, does the does the the henchman's loyalty increase if the party gets a better reputation, or as the party's reputation increases, right? Yeah, for sure. Like that that definitely puts me in mind of tables that work exactly like that in third and probably second. Mm-hmm. Want to say? Um, you, you've got your your leadership feat in third, and it's a table of modifiers. And I'm ninety five percent sure there's something like that in second that we probably talked about. But you have the status tables in Alcadim. Oh yeah, nice. Um, so, Colin, I want to get your thoughts on something here. Um, sure. So um, let's see. Likewise, an NPC's loyalty score increases by one d four if the NPC is treated particularly well. For example, mm-hmm. giving magic weapon as a gift. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that you'd like to you'd like to share? I bet they would really like a dog biscuit. Is what <laughs> I would like to say about that. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. I I did make a side bet with Rabbit that I could get you to uh, uh, make a dog biscuit, make a dog biscuit joke about I, that. I'm very I, happy. I know I defiled your God's altar, but it's okay, baby. Take this dog biscuit; it'll be all right. For anyone who hasn't played Dragon Age, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Um, uh, so, so I did say the other, the other thing that I liked, um, you know, I, I keep thinking about it and think about how many people have talked to me about D and D over this last year during the pandemic. Cause I, I work with a lot of people and mainly we work through their video conferences and, and things like that. Right. Just like everybody else. Um, but those, those random tables have been so helpful for people trying to figure out DMing for the first time. Cause so many of them really are DMing for the first time right now. And again, it's a localized experience, right? But uh, I think those randomized tables might be my favorite part of the chapter that I don't use, if that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense to me. I mean, I think it's awesome that you're kind of conversationally uh, right next to the front lines of people new to the hobby because I'm not. Yeah, it's been wild. Look, I might never roll on any of these tables, but... I would find them useful to refer to. Right. And to go, if I'm like, for whatever reason, I have to generate a bunch of new NPCs and I'm starting to get burned out on uh, just spontaneous creation, which. But but to Sam's point too, uh, a lot of questions on how to run adventures and how to run villains and things like that come out of this. And so I don't think the chapter does have enough words to to answer that. Right. And maybe, maybe it is a, a, a gap in D and D in general of, of how to put all the stuff together in a cohesive manner. Maybe that's, you know, here, maybe that's overall somewhere else. I think there's just a, a bottomless sort of, uh, market need for, um, a, a 300 page book on that of just villainy. How does it work? How do you, how do you do it? You know, everything from the, completely quotidian like the whole structure of my villainy is mugging all the way up through like 
cosmic cosmic level magic. Like, um, I've got probably a, a, an even half dozen uh, books, most of them from the the third Ed OGL glut, sitting around my shelves that just cover that. Some of them are even um, Watsi releases, like Heroes of Horror, uh, winds up covering a lot of that kind of material. Um, but I've got um, um, Evil by, I want to say Alderac, uh, from the, the third Ed uh, OGL days, that it's just that. Uh, the Book of Wild Darkness was, uh, you wish it would have been that, but it wasn't. Um, it was instead just uh, torture, por- torture porn and gross out porn. Not, not my deal. But, um, but yeah, like if someone wanted to make a whole book that was nothing but um, exactly what Sam has said, like getting into you know a, a four to six step explanation of every single thing in this table, not a word would be wasted. Right, that would be an amazing reference book for both DMs and writers. Just, just every kind of fiction writer would find that useful. I would say, like I've got books and books of writing advice on creating characters. Well, all of this would be helpful. Uh, it would, it would like, fit into that book too. The idea of cosmic level mugging is amusing, though. Cosmic level mugging, yeah. It's just like Kurt Russell, I guess, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I like one of the things that they kind of tuck in here and it's kind of its own section, but it, it's not, I mean, it's, it's kind of this nondescript, Oh, it's extras, right? Just as extras. That's kind of doesn't really tell you what they're talking about. But one of the things that it points out is, you know, you don't always know who the players or their PCs are going to single out as the NPC they gravitate toward and that the NPC now is going to play a bigger role than you ever thought. And so, you know, sometimes it's sudden that that happens and just, that's okay. Just, you know, you use this chapter to try to help you, you know, make that person into a more than a one dimensional NPC who you didn't know was going to be important. Yeah. Um, I, the PCs latched onto someone that I didn't think would matter is you know, one of the sort of most discussed things about how gaming goes off the rails in a positive sense, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so yeah, I absolutely love to see that. Um, uh, tons of GMing advice are, what do I do now that my players have decided that the stable boy did it all. Mm-hmm. Like what? <laughs> it was Agatha all along. Spoilers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think one of the things I would like to see here, and I don't know, maybe this is peeling back the the curtain too much for for Brandis, who plays in one of my current games, is like I think one of the tricks I've learned over the years, and is always my advice to the people asking me, is you have all the information, you have the story as the the person running the game. Right, you you have what you what you've prepared, but the details can can change, right? Like if you had an NPC planned for later that was going to be a hook, why not this person? You know, they don't the players don't necessarily know that somebody else was going to be that that hook. You know, 
I don't know. Yeah, sure. Well, we do this an awful lot in Dust to Dust. Where oh boy, howdy. We're <laughs> technically, we're like, well, that's technically supposed to be a different NPC, but why don't we just collapse those? And I don't think I ever regret. Do- uh, yeah, I don't think I ever regret having done that. Uh, so, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, Rabbit, Colin, and I were three members of a game staff. Uh, we had a bunch more friends helping us, but three members of the game staff that ran a, a, a five-year LARP in, in Atlanta called Dust to Dust. I've talked about it in the show a fair amount, uh, but reading through the villains, I was definitely sort of thinking, which of these did we use in Dust to Dust? Well, um, a bunch. We used a bunch. Uh, one thing about the villain scheme chart that is funny to me is, like, let's say you were trying to prepare a random villain. I think there's a wild swing between immortality and, you know, wealth. That's <laughs> villain, villain motives. It's a little swingy yeah. for, for animization. Uh, it, it, th- there's a lot there, but, like, I, I sort of love the idea of you get you get into tier four and you're still running into like these cosmic level NPCs whose scheme is to marry into wealth. Like, what does that look like? I the, the mind boggles. Um, and, and so that that brings to mind that this section would benefit hugely from a discussion of the four tiers of play and just how villains that can be bosses in tier one. Uh, are just nonsense in, you know, even mid-tier two, say nothing of tiers three and four. Like, the story changes with level, and maybe breaking um, scheme and method into uh, into tiers would have been useful. Maybe not. Who knows? People think in different ways. But that certainly strikes me as something that uh, might have been worthwhile. So the the Planescape lover in me, Brandis, would say, what does marrying into wealth look like at a cosmic level? And I would say I'd, I'd watch that, that soap opera set in the Astral Sea with uh, different factions from Planescape. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Sounds yeah. great. Yeah. 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 I mean, that would be amazing. Um, like, like, like the Downton Abbey that's set in um, uh, Tunarath, I would watch that. 100%. <laughs> well, and and we didn't really define wealth, right? True. Like you don't yeah. you don't know what the wealth is. Perhaps they're marrying into wealth by marrying uh, a far realm's god. You could be marrying for land. Yeah, the wealth that they get is going to be five of the surrounding stars. Um, and and you know uh, that's absolutely true. And that's like that's that's my delight in the idea, right? Mm-hmm. Um. And it, it also makes me think of um, a, a story hour uh, from Ian World, uh, Sepulchre's Tales of Wire, which starts at what we would now call like um, early tier three and runs through about tier seven on, on 5e's four tier scale. Because by, by the end of the story hour, uh, most of the characters are at least divine rank zero. Wow. Um, it's it's a lot, but yeah, like marrying for wealth at tier four is completely sensible in that in that story. So that's like part of my love for like, seeing that here 
And reinterpreting these things over different tiers would be another great thing in that putative villain book. That leads me to, uh, to think about something else in this chapter, actually the, the death domain cleric, because when you, when you talk about the story hour and divinity level zero, again, I'm a one trick pony here with Planescape, but back in third edition, I ran a different Planescape game. And one of the, one of the characters was like, Hey, I want to be a cleric. And my whole thing is I want to be a God. And I was like, sure, we can, we can work with that. There's weird divinity rules. Um, and so he wanted to be evil, but he wanted to get followers. So he kept, uh, being positive role models for them. So all of his worshipers were actually, anyway, going off topic here, <laughs> but he, he was death domain. Right. And so to see it as a villainous option here was a little, uh, little disappointing of, of, of the choices. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay, they, they wound up kind of over, overriding this with the grave domain because like, this is supposed to be evil, but like a, a, a faintly sinister, uh, like mortician cleric is a super popular concept. So I mean, we've mostly talked about the villain piece of this. Um, so I, I'm playing in a game that um, a local friend of mine is running. Well, a local friend of mine is in and two of his friends are playing. One of them is DM, but it's, you know, two PC, two actual players and the DM. So we have um, NPCs hanging out with us a lot of the time. So they're doing a good job with giving those guys some personality and interest, but I still mostly don't give a shit about them because <laughs> they're like quirky characters, but we don't actually interact at all, which Teaching somebody how to bring characters to life and make them uh, feel relevant to the PCs, that's hard. Especially if you're not, not really used to it, that's difficult. And that isn't covered here. What is covered here is the any NPC that accompanies the adventures acts as a party member and earns a full share of experience points. Now, given that uh, the idea of calculating experience based on the monsters the NPCs fight gives me hives, what is that actually supposed to mean? Right, is that uh, the PCs' share is diminished accordingly, or you divide by the number of PCs and then the NPC just also gets that? But that's... Still weird because it assumes the NPC stat block works like a character's, right? And and, and they have class and, and level, which isn't a given. Well, yeah, and there is a tiny, tiny bit here that is, you can create an NPC, you can use class and levels, and give them a character sheet. And if you do that, then they still need a challenge rating, which is really interesting, since you wouldn't normally give a PC a challenge rating. Yeah, well, and, and calculating a challenge, calculating challenge rating off of the things a PC can do is um, very brain melty because you have to do the math of how much damage they can potentially kick out in three turns, which is not what most PCs build around that much. Yeah, mm -hmm. unless you're a light cleric, <laughs> right? Um. Well, and, and to be honest, 
you know, one of the, so, you know, I have some younger players that are basically new to D and D and one of them is an aspiring DM and most of his questions to me when he, when we talk about the game and when we're, when we're trying to discuss, okay, how would I solve this problem? Right. Cause he's, he's a young kid. He's like 17. I mean, he's a, you know, what a 17, but to me, that's a kid. And like most of his questions revolve around, well, what does that CR really mean? Because this creature compared to this other creature doesn't really, it's not the same. And how come players don't have CR? And how do you how do you really create a creature and give it an accurate CR? You know, and and he has the same question about sidekicks and and about you know this sort of thing where you have okay you have NPCs because he you know sometimes he just runs the game for his brother, and so his brother runs two PCs and then they have a bunch of hangers on right they have like three or four NPCs and he he asks me multiple times he's asked me, well, how do I, do I give the NPCs XP and do they level up? And like, how do I do that? You know? And so that's this, that's the same kind of idea that we're getting at here. And, and like fifth edition is just so allergic to uh, even the idea of having one definite uh, XP system that everyone should use that you will find no answer to that question uh, here or anywhere. Right. Uh, their answer is much more uh, follow your bliss and that will not help your, your, your friend in the least. He has no bliss right. to follow yet. Yeah, he doesn't. And he, that's why he keeps asking me the same question, but slightly different. Right. Yep. <laughs> Cause he doesn't want to, he, cause he's told me like, I don't want to sound like a broken record. I, I know I keep asking you a very similar thing, but here's the issue I have. How do I resolve this? And we basically talk it through and it almost always comes down to, look, this is more of an art than a science. You're not going to get a one formula that fits everything. Yep. Yep. That, that is, is a great truth that is not changing. But so all, so all that to say, like, I understand why they didn't put, you know, a hard and fast rule in here, but then they kind of did They're you know, they're talking about, you know, the XP shares and, and it, yeah, it's, it is kind of confusing. I I agree with rabbit a little bit. Like, what does it even mean what they're saying? Well, and like, since, uh, that, that is a GM who wants everything to be fairly buttoned down. I mean, I understand that impulse. It it makes Mm -hmm. me wonder if, uh, trying some, um, third edition or fourth edition might be more useful for them. You know? Yeah, it's it's interesting, right? Uh, again, uh, with with all of the younger folks that I work with and all their first exposures to D anD D, I think one of the things about D anD D that appeals to them is there are more guidelines around their creativity, right? So for people who aren't accustomed to being creative, like there's rules for them to to grasp onto. Like that rigidity really helps a lot of them, which is why they haven't tried some of the the other games. So this whole, you know, follow your bliss, as Brandis puts it, can be a little bit off-putting or jarring to them in, in that case. Um, but again, I, I think it goes back to the earlier of D&D doesn't teach how to do this stuff holistically, right? To say, like, this is the different types of encounters you can build, you know, from an MMO perspective. Like, do you want a single dude? Do you want a, a bunch of little dudes and a big dude? Do you want the game to feel really hard? Do you want the game to feel easy? There's a lot of, that goes into it that it's, uh, you know, is your judgment call, and that's a little bit scary. Well, and I think in some ways this chapter, it really, 
falls in line very well with the previous three chapters in that what it's really giving is kind of an open toolkit, right? It's, it's giving a, here's some things, you know, to think about and here's some examples and here's some, here's some nice tables as inspiration and putting it all together though is a whole other five volume series of books, right? So, it's hard to it's but in in those terms this chapter really actually meshes well with the previous chapters of of the book because it's kind of on the same page in terms of we're giving you a little bit and we're giving you some tools and some helpful tips but we're not doing the extreme deep dive because this is a light toolkit not an extreme deep dive into a heavy mathematical codified system yep yeah, I keep thinking about Tech Noir, uh, which was a cyberpunk indie game, right? Love that game. And the big, the big thing that always goes, draws me back to it is the way they built adventures. And you know, looking at these charts in here, like you could build an entire Tech Noir adventure from it, because it's it's all about defining the events and then sort of collecting them into these different pillars of this is an action that can occur. These are the types of villains that we'll encounter as a result of those actions and things like that. Um, you know, and just that sort of template approach, almost like a, a flow chart, I think is hugely helpful for people trying to dive in. Yep. Th- there's basically like one procedural step of how each NPC plugs into the story once you go contact them that isn't quite here. But yeah, you're, you're right. It's really close to what uh, Technomar was doing. So you mentioned the, the cleric domain. What, what does everybody think about the Oathbreaker Paladin? So it's interesting to see like the the newest iteration of the the blackguard from um, sorry the what the, the anti paladin from second. Um, <laughs> I, I do agree it should be pronounced blackguard, but <laughs> that's that's Brandis bait right there, Sam. <laughs> oh, you want Brandis bait? Call it sigil. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> anyway, definitely a thing you could do. We have definitely not done twenty whole minutes on that on this show before. Um, but but yeah, I, I like the Oathbreaker in principle. Um, I I think that where fifth edition is with like. Um, GM authority and the whole flow of paladins, it would be really, really tough to um, to say, hey, you've broken your oath. I think you're an oathbreaker now. It really has to flow much more from uh, a conversation with the player where, like, no, you really very deliberately broke this oath. Are you okay with these stakes? Or do you want to, like work something else out because like, none of us actually want to go back to the super like DM authoritarian, like, Oh, that was a chaotic act mm-hmm. until you, until you find atonement, you can't gain any XP. Oh, that was an evil act by a metric that I'm not going to tell you. So I guess we're done here. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. That reminds me of the, like, if you're going to do that, you know, it does have to be an agreement between the player and the, 
the DM, I think, in that case, at least at least to be satisfactory and not cause friction. You know, yep. to go back to Dragon Age, right? You, the player, know what you're doing is bad. Everybody's like, hey, this is super bad. Are you sure you want to do this? You know, having that conversation, I think, is really important uh, for anything Oathbreaker related. But I do think it's really cool that they really thought that out from a narrative perspective of we presented these oaths as the underpinning thing for Paladin. And here's what happens if uh, the story goes south for that. Yeah. And and the sidebar for Oathbreaker Atonement is fine. It's good. You know, I, I'm not sure it quite jives with all of the other um, oaths they've released. I'm mainly thinking of Conquest, which is very um, World of Warcraft Death Knighty in its tone. Um, they're not good people. There's not a lot of ways to interpret it that aren't um, pretty fascist, but that's okay. I'm not here to tell people not to play villains. Maybe I am, but that's a personal opinion, not something I expect them to listen to me on. Um, yeah, I mean, so so that's one thing I was going to say is, you know, I, I have played games. I mean, I, you know, and I still, I, I still run a game where, not in D&D, but a Castles and Crusades game where, you know, the paladin has to be lawful good. And if they make a, a concerted, intentional act that is agreed upon by the DM and everybody else at the table, that that was an evil act that that PC performed, you know, that does have some really major consequences, but that's a PC, right? Not a, not a villainous NPC. That's not a major, I mean, there are villains who do that. Right. But, you know, so I guess my thing is like that game is built in a way and structured in a game where that works because it's part of the expected tropiness of it. Same as first edition AD and D you know, if we're playing first edition and you're a paladin, you're lawful good. I'm sorry. That's the rule. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, we could have a, there, you know, there's, there's conversations to be had about whether alignment is a good thing or a bad thing or whatever, but that's, that's not really what no, I'm you absolutely for. have never had on this show. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, I, but I'm just saying like in terms of, so let me put it this way. Um, in first edition and in castles and crusades and, and in certain games where that's that's part of it, you can have an opinion whether that was a good part or a bad part or whether it should have been done differently or whatever. But I think for me now, in in and this is purely my opinion, in fifth edition, I'm not sure it, it, there's a place for saying you have a paladin who has you know broken their oath and becomes an oath breaker because it's just a different game and and we alignment is so it's conceived of so differently now i think and so i i actually was kind of i i thought at first when i read this part of the chapter i thought oh, that's really cool because it's almost kind of giving you a template to make an evil villain but then it's talking about allowing the players to maybe do this and i don't know if it really fits I mean, there are definitely people who just want to run evil campaigns. Oh, sure, for sure, yeah, and, that, and, but I, yeah, yeah. But like, for for most PC paladins, things might go wrong with their oath. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to like take up the um, sort of uh, mustache twirling villainy of uh, <laughs> the, the oathbreaker. Though you should, because like you know, should have dread lord. I mean. Lord Soth is not a good PC, folks. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but he also had a fireball. 
Yeah, right. True. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm disappointed that uh, the Oathbreaker doesn't get Fireball uh, as their Paladin spell at, at ninth level. Right? I, I was too. Though I think it would be hard to r- run a game where you have an Oathbreaker Paladin and there wasn't other players there to support him or them rather. Yeah. Uh, because it's about you know buffing your undead army, but I think yeah. you need an undead army to be cool. <laughs> well, I mean, that's without what... that, you're just kind of a <laughs> kind of a dink. Well, it's very much a core issue with um, the necromancer uh, wizard subclass, which is not supposed to be a villainous one. It's just if you if your whole party isn't set up to be cool with you having you know uh, a million billion skeletons running around. Well, your subclass isn't going to go good. I'm probably off from Carnage. Well, sure. <laughs> Join the army. Serve your country. Twice. Twice. Um, so, so yeah, like I, I definitely know people who are very into, uh, you know, playing evil campaigns, uh, playing characters as sinister as the the table will let them, and that's fine for them. Um, yeah, of the two, I think the Death Domain Cleric is is the one I'm sad was pitched as a villainous option, right? Just because, yeah. you know, Cleric of Anubis, you know, things like that, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, and like I say, and that's kind of why they had to introduce the, the Grave Domain, because everyone agreed with you. I think that if they'd just gone ahead and, like, released the Grave Domain here, it would have merely been odd placement. Yeah. Uh, I will say double uh, told the dead seems pretty good though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Reaper's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Reaper's Reaper's real amazing, and and that's actually why it has to be villainous because it's so overpowered. <laughs> it's fair. <laughs> I mean, it is crazy overpowered. Um, I could be a responsible user. It'd be a responsible all kinds of crap. Um, so also I, ha- I look back at the hireling section and it's just mind boggling to see how short this is, uh, because we did do that whole series run through, um, the first ed, uh, DMG and the second ed DMG and the third ed DMG and North Arcana and so on that have just massive sections on hirelings. Hirelings are a huge part of expected play in in first ed and have diminished thereafter but like here there here we get three paragraphs and a pointer to the equipment chapter which just broke my brain enough that when Stephen Cheney and I were writing um, level up your background the a new DMs guild release from me hi thanks this is a plug um, <laughs> we had to expand it with what it takes to recruit hirelings and what their expected pay is, including danger pay, if any, right? Mm-hmm. Like we just couldn't leave it as sort of light touch as these three paragraphs and the equipment section. So, well, and the equipment, sorry to cut you off rabbit, rabbit, but the, the equipment section is only four paragraphs anyway. I mean, the, that this part of the, it's on page yeah. 159 for anybody following along at home, and it's four paragraphs and a little chintzy table. Right. So, 
here, I think, is where you could actually, it, in, even though you're saying, wow, this is really small comparatively, but here's where I think they could have got some word count back because they've got NPC, the NPC party member section is low level followers, adventure NPCs, the optional loyalty is cool, but, and then hirelings is way down there in a section that is co equal with NPC party members. Right. So, hirelings. A lot of times, like the rules that they have for hirelings here where you, you know, pay them and add them to lifestyle expenses, I would almost rather do that with the NPC party members than give them XP or treat them that way. You could have them develop or whatnot, but yeah. uh, treating them, as, if you're using the expense rules, which I generally like, um, using them as addendums to your expense rules, yeah, I'm basically fine with that. Sure. And, and and I know that part of the reason they're doing this is because if you're using by monster um, XP rules, you need to take that into consideration when you're looking at the difficulty. But sure. I don't know. Being that I don't do that. But that one sentence that you what you just said is enough though for those DMs who are using XP by the monster, right? Right. Just saying, you know, remember to take into account any hirelings and their, you know, XP pool. Yeah, like right. so much of those three paragraphs winds up being a pointer back to yeah. low-level followers and adventure NPCs. Yeah, and yeah. and that that layout is a bit redundant. They could probably have collapsed that, and I, I kind of get that they're trying to drive a line between oh, hirelings, as in, you know your coach driver, the person you hired and your link boy or scout or whatever. But a lot of times if you're hiring somebody who's coming with you, as opposed to your innkeeper, they're going to be, have a lot more in common with uh, a low level follower or adventurer and PC. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they call out, you know, a ship captain who may never see an actual encounter and is just a, you know, a face on the convenience of getting you from point A to point B. Sure. I just think that when they look at the types of NPCs, they're splitting the hair a little fine. I, I a little finer you. than they really needed to. And, you know, they, they could have spent that time explaining how uh, the Xanathar scheme is passion and his method, I don't know, is goldfish or something like that. <laughs> Uh, his ideal is greed. So, yeah. So one th- that you're, you're kind of bringing up uh, something uh, in my brain about Bond's flaws and, and, and secrets as they put it here. Um, and the, and the loyalty thing, right? Doesn't it say something in the loyalty section about, uh, Oh no, it's the NPC's loyalty score increases by one D four if other party members help the NPC achieve a goal tied to its bond. So then we go back to the bond, the bond table. Right. Um, And that for me, like uh, highlights the fact that maybe I would like to see more bonds, more possible bonds. Right. And, you know, the, the, um, the inspiration with, with ideals, bonds and flaws, that whole inspiration system introduced in the player's handbook, Yep. really really could use a lot of support and this is a this is kind of a nice you know thing that they have in here but um, I wish it was maybe highlighted a little bit more I'm not sure it needs more 
discussion about it in the book, but I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, traits, ideals, bonds, and flaws as you know, five sentences to try to tell you who someone is based on how they act and what they care about is like it's it's reasonable. Um, right, but then you're going to tie a loyalty it, score to it, right? Yeah, so. loyalty score and inspiration getting tied into it does make things get hairy. Mm-hmm. I I definitely agree with that. Um, but you know, the good news is uh, there are pages and pages and pages of uh, different phrasings of uh, ideals, bonds, and flaws in the backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Right, right. right. Um, like this table is certainly not sufficient to much of anything. Uh, it, it's a D10 table where one of the options is uh, roll twice, ignoring rolls of this number again. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's fine, but what? <laughs> the, the tracking loyalty is really interesting because part of the assumption is like you can help them achieve their you know, things tied to their bond multiple times because the loyalty is going to be fluctuating and it's also capped at a certain score. Right. So, yeah. so it's this sort of recurring way to, again, going back to my roots here and you know, grind faction out with the NPC. So yeah. it's, it's really interesting. It, it's, it's sort of saying like, these are the motives for the NPC though. It doesn't say that baldly, um, you know, to, to Sam's point about people early on who, maybe don't watch movies. Like I wonder how much is we could gain here in terms of space. If, if we really just said like, Hey, what, what actor do you imagine being stereotype cast as this NPC and moving on from there? (laughs) That's a little reductive, but you know, yeah, like that is one that would work for so many people. And yet like I would read that and bounce off of it. Even though once I got someone else to help me talk through it, it worked for me fine. But like my, my initial reaction is, what? I no, but my picture is this other thing, and that is not helpful at all. Just yeah, totally that's a, it's, it's a glitch in my brain. Well, to that point, the you know how to build different stories and how to leverage different conceptual ideas, right? Mm-hmm. It speaks, speaks to the complexity, but also maybe why having more of that structure and more of those templates for adventures might be helpful. Yep. And when it comes to GM advice in general um, of any kind, um, I think about the playtesting con we went to Metatopia and how at really a lot of tables, uh, some of the most common advice was, um, okay, I totally get this when I see you running it. How are you going to teach people how to be you? Yep. And, you know, D&D has gone through so many hands at various times, and you could argue that, you know, AD&D does a lot to go, here's how you run it like Gary. Don't do that, by the way. Well, right, and, and <laughs> th- that's in a lot of ways poisoned the well. Yeah, but um, but here it's... There is a mindset for now there's you know several different mindsets for how to create interesting NPCs with motivations and such. D&D's approach is typically pretty me- mechanistic cuz it is good on the entry level. 
but they're between a rock and a hard place on how do I make this useful for veteran DMs or DMs who maybe they run great combats, but they're not great at getting the players to really engage with NPCs is anything other than do I kill you or not? And if not, get out of my way. Yeah. Um, this puts me in mind of paranoia, right? Which spends time at the beginning of its, of its uh, game advice talking about the different styles of paranoia, right? Yeah. Zap, Zap and Noir and a bunch of others. I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting, right? But there's a whole different types of ways to run the game. And then the advice specifically comes out of those different styles, right? Um, throughout the book. And it almost serves to be like a, an index or style guide for the, for the rest of the advice within it. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, straight. Yeah, yeah. Playing... Straight, Classic, and Zap are the three big ones. There you go. Um, also, uh, Knight's Black Agents has a very similar uh, range of different modes that are like called out with icons in the margins for all these different ways you could decide to run Night Spike Agents. Um, but it, it's very much a similar idea. Call of Cthulhu has that too, because you can play Pulp Horror and you can play actual like existential horror. Yeah. And, yeah. and there are optional rules later on if you want a grittier game and things like that, right? So I don't, I don't want to discount that, but I, I think having it up front matters a lot when pitching your advice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Like, um, getting people to even agree all the time that D&D can have different tones is a conversational problem. But, um, <laughs> you know, Venrican's Guide to Ravenloft uh, fortunately does go really, really deep on, like, tone control advice. Uh, that's, that's something the book is received a lot of praise for is uh, how people are, how it talks about both uh, creating tone and uh, keeping your tone safe. Right. You mean reacting to and taking into consideration how the players feel about it? Right. It's, it's very much talking about safety tools um, for D and D and that's, you know, Okay, finally at last, but hey, it's here in the horror book. Um, but strangely, that's not the book we're talking about right now. <laughs> yeah, um, but th- that does put me in in mind of you know back going back to our time in Dust to Dust a little bit. Um, like there, I think there is sometimes a disconnect between uh, what people are okay with and what people think they're okay with when it comes to horror. So, so seeing that spelled out more, I think is great. Yes, yeah. very true. And. Uh, I, I, I have no other book in front of me. It's in the other room. But I think they say explicitly, you know, be ready for people to change their minds about what they're okay with yeah. and stop the session. Like, yes, they agreed to this, but they can withdraw consent. Yeah. Uh, and, and I will say, I think it is useful as, you know, y'all go forward looking at this book that um, – when looking at, hey, here's where, gee, I wish there was a bit more information in the DMG itself, or I really wish they'd focus harder on this thing. Okay, they knew that too, and here's where they tried to store that up a little bit in a later release. 
Yeah. Because, I mean, this is one of the first things that came out. Yep. After all. Literally the second thing that came out. Yeah, and the flip side of that is what happened in fourth edition, right? Where everything's digital and there's a bunch of erratas and then the books can't keep up. It's, yep. you know, yeah. Well, and, and, and then they decommission it. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. What, what a what a terribly terribly painful thing to to see happen. Um, but you know, on this show we've covered the fourth edition DMG and DMG two, and. I mean, those are those remain great texts. Um, th- those are worth hunting down for fifth edition DMGs, DMs right now because so much of the advice is timeless. Um, though I don't know that it has e- even as much as this on the story level creation of villains in terms of like schemes and methods. Maybe it does, and I've just forgotten. It's been a little while since we recorded that. You know. December. Yeah, maybe the section needs a Mad Lib at the end, where you can fill in the the villain's name, their scheme, and then you know how how that might have been acted. Well, it sounds like we are moving on toward uh, having said everything we need to say about this chapter. Is that about accurate, people, or do we have more we want to cover here? Uh, I think we've said a lot about it. Yeah, I think I think we're probably at the the end of what we can say about this particular chapter. It is it is a very short chapter, re- relatively speaking. Um, actually, we, we didn't cover villains' weaknesses. Um, th- that's a sort of oddly positioned in the layout bit. No, no uh, I didn't even notice that. Yeah. Uh, but it's actually really nice. Um, and I like it because um, it makes me think about... Um, Black Company? Well, for sure, it makes me think of a black company. That's always a good thing. Um, but yeah, well, and, and it also works really well for Ravenloft. Give your you know dark lords some kind of special weakness. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, sure. Um, for all your Draculas, there with your third option, yeah. right? Right. <laughs> well, I mean, you sure are going to want that Sunblade before you go fight Strahd. Good advice there. Um, but this kind of stuff was so critical to us while. Uh, creating lieutenants of the most foul and dust to dust, right? Um, like we um, absolutely used, you know, uh, soul gem kind of stuff for uh, why our villains were going to come back after being killed once for some of them. Um, or like you have to have the nemesis weapon to, to kill them or whatever it was. Um and so this is really great for making villains memorable if you have to jump through some special hoops to kill them uh, and sort of just a plain old plugging isn't going to do it. And, and for a LARP too, uh, you know, I, I think there's a belief that, at least for us, Brandis and Rabbit, and when we talked about it, that if it was going to be on, you know, on camera in front of players, uh, there's a very real chance that a fight would occur, right? Oh, yeah. At any given time, I don't know if you know this, but uh, people like to hit things with plumbing supplies. So uh, <laughs> anything could be a fight at any moment, right? And so it was important for us to say, all right, if we're going to put time and effort into the resourcing here, you know, how can we get the most bang for our buck and, and how can we make this a part of the story rather than something that we have to either stat around or make unfun? Right. I, I absolutely think that's 
one of the most critical decisions, most critical, critical conversations around um, putting villains on camera. Like, uh, either you need to say, like, always be prepared for the villain to get suddenly splattered the first time they're on camera, or create really strong reasons that, that the players aren't going to be able to just, you know, knife this guy and be done. It's the it's the burn notice, right? Um, I think I've talked with brands about this before too. But in the commentary of Burn Notice, the the TV show, um, one of the things the writer and director talks about is how the main character would never be beaten in a fight. And they said the writers agreed on that, so any conflict had to be all right. Assuming a fight can't win this, how does he solve it? Yep. Huh. Yep. Um, that's a that's a really good like whole area of conversation um like how does like a chapter on villain techniques for avoiding uh a fight even if they're appearing by themselves like it won't be perfect but just face time with a villain where it isn't their last encounter adds so much to later encounters um and i think we all know it Right, and it's just uh, hard to put in practice because uh, players have no incentive to make it easy. Well, and it's it's fun to try to defeat the bastard, right? Well, sure. Uh, it, it's it's hard to 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 pull off as a DM because you know it's fun for the PCs to to fight and defeat the, 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 you know, the big bad. And it's also, there's a weird line that has to be skirted on the other side. And that is, you know, you don't want it to come back. You don't, you want the main villain to just come back all the time in a comical form, right? Like it, you can't be like, Oh, him again, you know, Mm -hmm. like, as in every time we find out something, it's this guy. Well, and, so, there are so characters that works for yes, sometimes that works. Uh, sure, sure. Here I'm going to say one of those things I I always say uh, by by calling out um, something that that Colin wrote. The thing I always say is that uh, Colin's writing for Tribality was always at least two years ahead of its time. Uh, in this case, what I mean is uh, recognizing that uh, wrestling plot lines, professional wrestling plot lines are an amazing model for writing stories for tabletop games. This is something Colin was writing about uh, a really long time ago in Tribality. Yeah, and, I think six, six years ago, something like yeah, that. Yeah, and the articles didn't draw nearly the attention they deserved. But what I'm getting at here is a conversation on how to build heat. Mm-hmm. Like that is such an important thing. You need the players to hate this person so that the fight means anything or make them love them. Like if you love the villain, that still means something. Just feel something about them. Feel it really strongly, please. Yeah. The concept of good heat and bad heat, right? Um, In wrestling, it's heat on the character versus heat on the person playing it. Right. Usually, or, you know, some backstage stuff. Uh, But, but it's true if, games too for for sure um you know you want people to to hate the villain for what they're doing and things like that not because they're annoying and you keep reusing them you know you, you don't want them to be kalefoss that's that's rough 
but fair. So yeah, I, I think that like for all that I like this chapter, um, not really getting into like techniques for building heat is my big absence. Um, maybe well, I think heat. you I think you hit it on the head too earlier when you said it could use a discussion about tiers and how. Yeah how these things would apply differently at different tiers. And that could fit right into that building heat idea, right? So, so, so what I'm hearing is we've, we've all just uh, signed in blood to create a book on good villains. <laughs> we're, all, we're all doing that now, right? Yeah, look at the time. <laughs> Colin, I, was, I was trying to figure out how to... Uh, yeah. But but rooking Rabbit and Colin into long-term projects they would love to be done with is yeah, like my MO. Yeah. That is facts. <laughs> Actually. <laughs> so so overall impressions, what are your what are your final thoughts? And when I say you, I mean all three of you individually. <laughs> uh Colin, you go first. Yeah, I'd uh, I don't know, I'd give it a a solid neutral face on my five frowny faces, five smiley faces scale. Uh, I think it's okay, right? I think it does half of a number of jobs, uh, pretty okay, and then doesn't get rest of the way there. But I don't know if that's the fault of the chapter, or the structure of the book overall. I think that's I think it's a pretty fair cop. I think that like the the way this chapter can't really be integrated with the adventure writing chapter uh, very much creates that problem. Um, but I think it's a, a pretty fair cop overall. Yeah. I feel mildly weird about this, but I think I ultimately come down to what Sam said at the beginning. Um and what Colin just said, there kind of needs to be more there. And part of it is because so much of what it's doing, it's wound up doing in other chapters. And um, I don't know. Uh, it's not bad. There's definitely useful stuff there. Um, but um, but it is hard to stand as, you know, just one chapter. Yep. Yep. I think that... Um... I think that very much uh, works for me as as a response. As I say, I do really love uh, the villain's methods table. I think that um, most DMs need to get, at least give that a close read to just think about other angles of people doing bad things in their world. Um, there's, there's sort of a bit too much of this chapter that I... Assume some folks need to read, but um, eh. one thing I think I, I forgot to talk about was it struck me really weird that some of the advice in this chapter was I don't know make your players do it for for running the NPCs. It was like yeah, create a bunch of NPCs and then your players will just handle the rest for you. It's no big deal. Yeah, really. <laughs> and I found that a little bit like well, maybe not. Um. I did have uh, you know, a high side of mixed results of uh, asking players to run um, some NPCs who came with them on an adventure at one point. 
Um, but yeah, it, it, it's not always not always a win. I don't think every player's up for that. I think was more what sure. what I was coming for it from. I, I think a lot, at least a lot of the people I've played with would not be comfortable doing that long term. Yeah, fair. And uh, unless um, and play testing something that's really explicitly troop style, and if you're doing that, okay, great, but you've got to be doing that. Well, and so part of the problem with giving advice about uh, giving advice of, okay, uh, have the players create these NPCs and then have them run the NPCs. And then, and then, you know, a paragraph and a half later, you say, well, you know, if the NPC isn't being played very well, just take that NPC back or give it to another player or just have them leave the party, which smacks to me of the player's not doing it the way the DM would do it. So it's okay for the DM to take that quote privilege away of having control of that NPC. And it's, but in between those two sort of assertions, it's almost like we forgot to give you advice on how to, you know, support your players in playing these NPCs. Um, It just, it comes off a little odd to me. I didn't actually, as I read it, it was like, yeah, okay, I've, I've seen that. And I've done that in the game, you know, with, with very few players, but it does, it does, it feels kind of almost tacked on. Yeah, I would agree. That is, uh, a very strange tone choice. But, you know, overall, I feel like this chapter, uh, let me put it this way. If there was no, in you know, creating NPCs chapter, it would definitely be missed. It would be an obvious hole in a book called The Dungeon Master's Guide, right? And I think the... Effort is obvious, and I think there's some really good stuff in here. I think some of it falls flat, but I mean, you know, that's true of probably pretty much any chapter. I I do love the villainous method table. I I do agree that that is something that maybe could get get a, a a DM, no matter what their experience level, get their mind trying to reframe how a villain is going to pull off some of their hijinks, right? And yeah. that in order to make the world, the setting, feel or seem more real to the players, it's important that not every villain just has the same shtick, right? For sure. All right. So I think if, I, if I'm using Colin's smiley face to sad face to neutral face scale, I would probably say I'm about neutral face plus a half so half so half the face is neutral and the other the other edge of the mouth is curling up in a smile a little bit (laughs) (laughs) just like a two-faced villain one of your one of your mardi gras masks yeah i think that's good (laughs) (laughs) any anything else that we need to no thanks for inviting me and sorry for all the digressions Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Uh, yeah, thank really you. appreciate having you, Colin. And thank you again, my darling rabbit, for coming on to the show. Yeah, thanks, guys. And yeah, always happy to chat with y'all. Um, so we we like to do um, you know a, a, an outro of uh, where you can where people can find you on the internet. Uh, 
So I, for example, uh, write for tribality.com. Uh, my personal blog is brandastoddard.com. You can follow me on Twitter at brandastoddard. And I have a Patreon that is brandastoddard. Colin? Uh, definitely check out the Tribality folks. I, I used to write for them in the past. Uh, I've been involved with the Seas of Odari project on behalf of them. Um, I don't really have anything to promote, and I don't really have anything to, to link to. I think there's other people in the community who are way worth uh, your time more than me. So I'll leave it there. Yeah, you can't find me. I'm invisible. No. Um, uh... And I guess I'm on Twitter, more or less, Codalock, uh, C-A-U-D-L-A-C, which you could follow if you want, but kind of not really. I mostly don't these days. I've got a Patreon on there, and I guess it's sort of kind of gaming-related. I make text props, basically. So, yeah, but... She makes great stuff. Yep. Uh, what is, even, what is even my Twitter handle? Uh, stands in the fire. There you go. Um, I don't really talk about anything in particular, but you're, you're welcome to check. And Sam? Uh, I am on Twitter at DM Samuel, and I am on the web at rpgmusings.com, and of course I am all over the Tome Show. And um, yeah, so I think that's it. I think I, I just want to thank you both for for coming on and and uh, and talking about this. You know, it, it it's um it's it's real. You know, I, there there's the whole trope thing of oh nobody reads the fifth edition D and D. You know, DMG. And um and I I think so far being uh, about four chapters in now, I think um I think everybody should be reading this book. Yeah, I I think that. Even if we have not the best opinion of the chapter as a whole, doesn't make it not worth reading. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, I, I think the Fit Five E DNG as a whole is a book of of really good parts, right? Um, and maybe how you use those parts could could use a little bit better guidance. But like, there are a lot of good parts there. As I said, you know, people really like and use the random charts in here. So I wouldn't want it to go away, that's for sure. I think more people should be checking it out. Awesome. Well, with that, uh, I think Brandis and I only have uh, one last thing to say. Go for it, Sam. You know, even though there is a large number of vaccinated individuals in the United States and in the world, and even though there is a less less risk if you are vaccinated... I will tell you from a biological standpoint that you should still wear your mask if you are indoors with strangers. Also, the cops that murdered Breonna Taylor should definitely still be arrested and tried and convicted. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sam. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.